Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. The Sound and Vision podcast book is now available for pre-order. Why I Make Art features an in-depth look at 30 artists, from Chris Martin to Robin Williams. There's also thematic quote sections and images from sketches artists contributed to the Sound and Vision guest book. It has a foreword written by Rishikesh Hirway of the Song Exploder podcast and Netflix show. You can get your copy at the Altelier Editions website. There's a link in the Sound and Vision website to pre-order yours today. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join this summer in New York City or virtually from anywhere in the world. To learn from dedicated artists and to expand as a maker in the school's legendary marathon program. Rigorous and immersive marathons unfold over 10 days from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time daily and present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Expansive first-hand discoveries propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies for understanding their experience in the world the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon's conclusion. Generous, partial scholarships are available. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden make their signature line of acrylic paints, core watercolors, and Williamsburg oils. I'm starting a new group of paintings, and I'm really excited to get into it with my Golden Gesso matte mediums and my Golden Acrylics. I've been using Golden for over 20 years, and it's never failed me in the studio. The new line of So Flat gives a supremely matte surface, and if you're after shine, the gloss varnish does an amazing job. It's an employee-owned company based in upstate New York. Golden's available in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound & Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Based in Seattle, Fulcrum makes incredible coffee that you can have delivered to your door. They have subscription services where you can have different blends delivered that you tailor to your favorite balance of coffee beans. You could save 20% on your order by entering the code ALFREDSTUDIO when you order from their site. Check out their amazing coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Matthew Stone, born in 1982 in London, is an artist that works across a number of different disciplines including painting, sculpture, photography, new media, and performance. Matthew began his career as a leading influencer in a number of counterculture movements in London. He was instrumental in developing the South London art collective Wow Wow, as well as a central figure in the shift of subcultural understanding that came to reimagine and later define areas of the East End of London during the mid-aughts. The artist has been part of a number of critically acclaimed solo and group shows, both nationally and internationally. In the United Kingdom, he's shown at the Tate, the ICA, and the Royal Academy of Art, and internationally at the Marrakesh Biennial, the Fiorici Foundation, and Via Fiorini Milan. He's shown at the whole gallery, Choi and Lager in Korea, Gallery V1 in Copenhagen, and many, many more. 
His work has been covered in the New York Times, Hype Beast, High Fructose, White Wall, Culture, Dazed and Confused, amongst many other outlets. And he is releasing a fine art print titled Play, and it's available now and for the next 24 hours only at Misa Art. It's M-I-S-A dot A-R-T and at Misa dot Art Market. I spoke to Matthew about reconnecting to nature, finding the real call to make art, working digitally and finding new space to make and show work, cultivating subculture, making tinctures, and much more. Here's our conversation. preamble <laughs> it's very well it can be it's very uh unprofessional <laughs> okay cool uh making music i think when i was a kid i i for a period i learned uh the accordion um i had some lessons on the accordion but never really that never really stuck i would um yeah my dad i remember my dad recounting to me um I started off studying graphics and then changed uh, to fine art painting uh, in my second year. And I spoke to my dad when I was changing and he was like, but is this going to be like the um, unicycle? <laughs> I <laughs> something that I would enthusiastically start and not complete. Right. Um, and so he had, and I was kind of like, that was, I guess I was like 11. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that said, I do still have, interests that pop up and um disappear again um well not not to question your father but what does a full commitment to the unicycle look like i i guess eventually being able to ride it which i'm I know. oh i was just making it oh i thought i, I thought he meant like career-wise like, right you know, the circus or something you know, <laughs> i see a penny yeah. farthing going down the street like <laughs> commuting to work on it right yeah, no, I'm, the accordion's a you know that's an eccentric instrument to start out on too. You know, definitely. I think I'd seen someone playing it in the street, and I'd been like, "Wow, that's cool! I'd like to be able to do that." And my parents yeah. were kind of like, "Okay, well then you should do it." And I guess we found one at a Carbusa or something. Um, but I, um, yeah, but I guess like so, my dad is into a lot of Irish folk music, and um, that's also on my mom's side of the family uh and so i have memories when i was a kid of us kind of like family events singing at the end of the night sort of thing so yeah music was there like that um communal sort of social thing yeah definitely yeah and a kind of um uh like a yeah yeah it's social and i think there's I guess it's kind of like there's a social aspect where people are singing together, but then there's also an aspect where everybody wants their turn to kind of show off or to kind of um, spotlight. Yeah. And then a healing aspect to it maybe as well. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, that's not dissimilar to, you know, like when I found music, my dad always listening growing up, like listening to Motown and stuff, I was exposed to it, but then, you know, playing, playing music in, like ju- or middle school like junior high school or whatever you know it was a way to sort of you know express yourself or just define that you're a little different in the taste of what you want to play and stuff in the same way i think artwork gives us a creative 
output of expression you know when you're young it's music is such a great way because then you also have friends and you can like hang out and practice and do shit you know yeah that's cool i didn't really have that experience with music it was more like once i moved to london when i was 18 i i had been collecting records um secondhand records for quite a long time uh sort of disco stuff and and motown and atlantic stacks that kind of a thing and lots of kind of 80s pop and things like that uh and i guess i started djing while i was still at art school um wait well, where did you grow up i thought you grew up in london uh so uh, bios are tricky you know it's it's usually not totally you know like right. from this place and you think oh you know born and raised in london probably so i was i was born in london and then when i was like two my parents uh moved to a little stone cottage on the edge of the of the uh kennet and avon canal in the west country of the uk um and it was very much like uh it were half of it was that we were in we had a generator so there was no mains electricity we had gas lights and a septic tank uh lots of animals things like that so i had this rustic yes um sort of thing that you're like simultaneously ashamed and proud of <laughs> when you're a kid uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in the moment you're you're a little ashamed but then reflective you know thinking back it's probably nice right yeah but i think i also would have been defensive of it even as a kid um yeah but there was definitely a kind of frustration with sort of like the lights going out at a certain point or not being able to put the tv on because the generator wasn't on or something like that right or it was just cold as well <laughs> yeah so yeah. so what what did they just make that move just was it work related or just uh, quality of life related or I think they financial? didn't I think they didn't want their kids to grow up in a city they were quite idealistic uh and kind of I guess like 80s working class hippies um and so they were like I'm a vegetarian since I was born and um so but it was mm, I moved down with my sisters and my mom and my dad, but my dad was still working in London. So the majority of the time, and the plan was that he would find a job locally, but he um, he kind of, he was in London mostly. And then, so it was mostly like me, my mom and my sisters in this house that you had to sort of park the car and then walk to get to. You're the odd one out. It's the only boy. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. The oldest and a boy. But yeah. You, well, you must be um, in touch with the sisters, right? Well, I mean, was it a good experience? Yeah. Being out there and, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, and it wasn't, it's something that I kind of forgot. But for me, the real thing was just growing up in nature. Like I spent yeah. all of my childhood, like in the woods, swimming in the river. I had like a kind of, and I completely forgot this, but. I, I had, like, a really strong interest in, like, herbal medicine when I was a child, like a young child. I must have had a book or something, so, like, foraging and things like that. Um, I remember, like, digging, trying to find a specific root of a plant because I knew you could make something with it. Um, and that's something that's kind of come back to me now. Like, I live in the countryside now, and I didn't see that coming, but um, once it did, I was like, oh, right, okay, that's, like, yeah. 
There's a reason I know all the names of the plants. Right. I remember this. Like, I used to be out here. <laughs> now, when you say, I mean, the move back wasn't on purposeness or you wasn't planned? Uh, I just mean in the sense that there was a time where I would say to people, um, I will never leave London. Like, it was just like, I knew, I knew at that point, And I was wrong. <laughs> Famous last words of anyone. Right. I'll never leave the city. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and that shifted. I I got ill. Like, I got, like, a chronic fatigue diagnosis. Um, and I had a dog. And the dog was too badly behaved for the local park. So we started going out to, like, this marshland that I realized you could reach on the bus, like, ten minutes away. And it was, like, a few miles of like really beautiful countryside in East London. So there's forest areas, like fields, marshland, uh, rivers, like all kinds of stuff, loads of, loads of wildlife and very biodiverse. And so I took him out there just so that he wouldn't like run in the road. And right. that was when I was like looking around and finding that I was like, oh wait, I, why? How? That's comfrey. I know what comfrey is used for broken bones, and why do I know that? And and then I started, yeah, I started to remember that I had been really into that. And I think that simultaneously, there had been this other drive and this interest which took precedent, which was like get away to the city, like yeah, like I'd. It's funny watching this, um, the Diaries of Andy Warhol. It's on Netflix at the moment. That was good, wasn't it? That was a good one. <sighs> My God, I that I, I it really brought back to me how much he meant to me when I was a kid. I got a very, I had a real like. Okay, I got to do my version of the Factory, um, and simultaneously also knew about somehow knew about squatting, and had this idea that I was going to squat and find my creatively anarchic people uh, in London. And so that was, I kind of, yeah, went away to go to London. And so there was that. And then, then the nature thing came back later. And right. Yeah. Well, a question between uh, the stimulus of the city and, you know, the, the intensity of you know the action the people and all that and then conversely the idea that you know being out away from the city being off the grid to some extent mm. and the the opening of creativity especially when you're young you know i feel like now creativity is much different for kids because of technology than it was because you know i spent a lot of time bored and you know playing music and drawing and stuff was stuff i did because i was bored you know so it inspired creativity in some way where i don't know it, it might have shifted a bit, you know, once technology was so prevalent. So I don't know how you, how do you feel about the dichotomy or the, you know, the, your experiences between that of, of being creative out in the woods versus your time in the city? Um, it's an interesting question because like, uh, I sort of, when I think back to those times, it was highly creative in terms of like building dens and like 
uh yeah making things making potions in the garden <laughs> um yeah. and and learning right because it said you were you, you know you mentioned that you were like looking for things it's almost like research yeah definitely and it's i'm thinking about it as well because there was a point um for me where i very seriously it wasn't that i was it wasn't as melodramatic as like i'm quitting making art it was kind of like it was more along the lines of i am so anxious and so kind of uh going through it emotionally and uh, making medicine from plants that I'd harvested took me out of that, that I was like, well, why? Maybe I should be doing this all the time. Um, right. And, you know, in hindsight, that was a very specific period and a kind of period of healing. And But uh, it it's funny because I'm kind of thinking about yeah what it's making me think about like creativity and what that actually is for me and the healthy versions of that creativity that are sort of maybe devotional in some sense and connected right. to an idea of feeling connected to the divine and being somebody that kind of at most co-collaborates with that process and then the kind of other ends of it that are maybe more to do with seeking approval and wanting to kind of create uh, a sense of identity through being an artist or you know like legacy things like that that feel more less connected to that sort of spiritual practice of art and more to do with like I don't know all the things, I mean, it's, these aren't necessarily bad things, but like the ways that artists make a name for themselves and make careers and things like that. Right. Um, and the plants, um, although, you know, you can make a career out of anything on the internet these days, but... <laughs> True. <laughs> but the plants somehow, they feel, that feels the same as the kind of devotional art making um it feels like it comes it's the same space um but it's there's less less of an obvious end product i guess even if you could make a tincture or right something like that maybe it's uh if you take the framework away from it maybe the root of it is more what you're talking about is more getting to the internal reason of of creativity and exploring as opposed to whatever's on the outside right mm. so like the art world all that stuff sort of like outside stuff right spirituality can be an inner search or it can be in the church or it can be in you know it's funny because you were when you mentioned that i thought like you know warhol went to church mm. his whole life and a lot of people use religion as not just spirituality but seeking approval right their legacy they want to go to heaven they don't want to burn in hell yeah <laughs> so i mean and you know it all depends on it's all framework whether it's yeah. artwork or or religion or whatever it is and i think we all have to find our inner balance of why we're doing it and how we get there yeah and i think just riffing off what you said i think in that sense uh like religion is the spirituality what 
the art world is to art in a sense. Right, exactly. And there's lots of room for really meaningful, wonderful things to occur in religion, in the art world. And then yet they also seem to be these things that take us away from uh, our, our core practices, if we can call it that. Well, dare I say music too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. most people pick up a guitar or pick up a piano and, well, not pick it up, but play it to sort of <laughs> express, you know, to feel. And and it's about the jamming. Yeah. It's about, you know, that excitement. And then there's the record industry. Or there's touring and there's T-shirts and there's, mm. you know, the legacy. There's the Hall of Fame or whatever. Sure. You know, so I think any... And again, not necessarily bad things. No, not necessarily. It's, uh, I mean, it... But that's what I mean. I guess it, it's, it's every individual. Yeah. Like we all feel a balance. Warhol had much more of a balance of, hey, I want to be, I'm interested in the cult of fame or, mm. or sort of like, you know, the spotlight or how people act in those instances. Like he was, he wanted to explore that side of us, our desire to be famous or to be seen. And at the same time, he was incredibly crippled with anxiety and sort of, you know, self-doubt in a way. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I think everyone has their own metric of how they want to explore that mm. or, or how deep they want to go in those areas. You know, it's always crippling when you see someone who becomes super famous and you know, they don't care about that at all. They just want to make the stuff, you know, and then it's really hard for them because it keeps pulling them away. Mm. But there's other people who get famous and it, they double down on it and it gives them more resources and they just dive in and they can mm. become more creative in it. You know? Yeah. I, um, when I was, I guess, how old would I have been? Like, I, I wrote my, in my twenties. So when I was at, when I was at art school, I wrote my dissertation on the spiritual content of Andy Warhol's work. Um, and at that point it wasn't, I mean, the information was out there. Obviously, the late works have explicit religious content. Um, but it wasn't really part of the dialogue. Um, and so actually seeing the Netflix thing and seeing the sort of the less knee-jerk response to him and his work was... Um, yeah. Was, uh, but, I mean, it also kind of... <laughs> the last episode, like, both him and Basquiat dying alone and then the way that they talked about this sudden turn where suddenly people were taking Warhol's work seriously and the yeah. MoMA retrospective was confirmed and if I'm not uh if I remember correctly I think Warhol had even offered to gift works to the MoMA that had been refused previously oh that's a famous rejection letter right that I actually hung that in my graduate school studio. Okay. Because, I, I mean, I grew up in Pittsburgh, so Warhol wow. was there from the jump for me. Yeah. Like, I've always... I can't separate my youth from Warhol because I just saw it everywhere and it was part of Pittsburgh. So, you know, but when I was in grad school, I, was, I remember seeing that letter and being like, you know, he was offering to donate a piece. Yeah. And it was the rejection letter and, like, look at it now. It just seems, you know, ridiculous. But it makes you feel like, well... If Warhol gets, you know, rejected, you know what I mean? It's it's fine for all of us, basically. We got to just keep keep going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it it that episode made me very sad. It made me kind of oh, yeah, feel definitely. like there was no one to look after them. <laughs> right. And, definitely. And, yeah. you know, and it's, it's a relatively well-rounded series in the sense that 
it also shows his humanity and his potential to be exploitative. But I think it's sort of, yeah, looking at the ways that he was, I mean, it, he would set things up and then fall into them, I guess. But he, it feels, yeah, I don't know. I felt like I could kind of, it It just seemed like there was a lot of people wanting to kind of exploit him and that, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it was definitely, I thought it was really insightful because I've read a lot about Warhol, but seeing that open up some new things to me. But at the end of the day, I felt like, you know, a lot of people come to creativity to try to, like I was saying, like, you know, the kids in high school try to join a band so they could be more popular or something. You know, right. a lot of people who are, are not self-assured don't feel confident in their own skin or you know that drives them to be creative or to create or to try to find meaning through this act of creative exploration Mm. but so many times it doesn't do it they're still uncomfortable or they still have a hard time you know navigating themselves in a way inside you know and i feel like that's tough no matter how famous you get or no matter how many people look at what you do you know, there's a, I think there's a great comfort in feeling very confident or very, you know, okay with what you're doing or yourself in a sense. That's a tough place to get to, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it, it kind of, it goes both ways. There are sort of whether people are overconfident or underconfident, it's sort of the same type of madness. Um, right. And distraction from themselves in reality and the task of making art and connecting to the process and being transformed by it. Um, But it's, uh, yeah, I think that there is also, you know, it's that, that vulnerability of entering difficult psychological territory is um, what makes art important and valuable to other people. Um, Right. And, I mean, I've, in my life, I've gone in and out of kind of believing this. I've had points where I've really just like naively and firmly believed that art will like, I don't know what, save the world or something. And then sort of (laughs) years where that was not there. (laughs) And uh, somehow I'm kind of coming back round to um, a kind of, yeah sort of optimistic view of art that it's and just recognizing that it's in it's in all of those processes of falling in and out of love of losing faith of um uh viewing it in a practical way and then sort of having moments where you really lucidly see how it has kept you alive and um yeah I think the endeavor on its own extracted from the reasoning or the, the impetus, it's just a beautiful activity. Mm. It's one, like if you think of human activity, it's one of the, I think it's one of the better ones. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I mean, I sort of, I have this, um, very (laughs) far reaching definition of art, um, which is that, um, all human activity is by nature creative that everything that we're doing creates reality 
Um, and so therefore, and because, you know, you look at the 20th century, lots of amazing artists have fought to demonstrate that anything can be considered art. Um, then any of that activity, um, which is inherently creative, can be approached consciously, can be approached with the decision to make it meaningful, challenging, beautiful, or, or whatever, you know. But this, but the idea that if you come with consciousness to an activity, um, and by consciousness I mean an awareness of the inherent potential for decision-making to be, yeah, meaningful in some some way, then... To me, that's that's the point at which human activity becomes art. And that, although that feels very far-reaching um, as a definition, it, to me it feels useful to kind of, well, just to experience more art within my life. Because then right. when you see somebody tending to, I don't know, a garden or something that, you know, may not be thought of or designed, uh, uh, defined as art traditionally you get to like enter into the loving care and attention that is that makes art valuable you know that those are the sort of yeah. fields fields that we're trying to bathe in when we look at art or experience right. art we want to we want to be up against whatever it is that that person has kind of devoted themselves to um, and the energies behind that yeah, definitely. I, you know, a guy came and fixed, unclogged my toilet a week and a half ago or something. And there was a real art to that, you know. But the thing is, is like some people become artisans at certain things and they don't like doing it. So then there's no joy or exploration and it's just doing the job, you know. The one thing about, you know, quote unquote fine art or f fine art is the extreme of it is it's carte blanche. There's no rules. You just, you know, you're choosing what you're going to be an artist with or how, you know, and maybe that's kind of like the uncut version of it. You know, I mean, a chef makes it's, it's art making food, you know, it's just people eat it and it's, there's a very utilitarian tactile way to literally digest it. Whereas, you know, a sculpture or, or a painting or, you know, something like that is just, there's not that tactile usage for it. It's basically right. the uncut, like, you know, witnessing of a creative act. And that's why people hate it sometimes because they just don't understand it. They're like, what's this bullshit? It doesn't, doesn't serve a purpose for me, you know? Right. And then other people get lost in it in a beautiful way, you know, like poetry, hmm. you know? I mean, I, I would agree to an extent, um, but I would also say that I feel like the, that, the poetics of something not having a use um, is just one aspect of like what we can think about as art. And so, because if an artist, you know, a fine artist decides that they want to make food as art and put this in a gallery and it doesn't stop being art because it's gained that function. It's about right. the intention. And, and so I guess like, I, but I do. I I also I also love the the kind of lack of utility of art, um, and there is a poetic there. But then you know, utility can arise in the form of 
financial instruments. That's something that art sort of does and that's something that happens around it and inside of it too. Totally. So yeah. it's Or looking, just looking at something. There's a utility to that too. Right. Yeah, exactly. You hang it in your room and you look at it or people talk about it when they come over. I mean, that serves a purpose. Definitely. You know? But yeah, to your point, like Rear Criteria Venetia, I think that's what makes him so, made him so amazing when he emerged is he's just like cooking for people at the shows. Right. So the context makes you, you know, the context of any, anything changes the way we, we read it. You know, poetry in the, on the page as opposed to spoken word, as opposed to being projected in, you know, Times Square or something. Mm. Totally changes. Same thing, really. It's words, but the context changes it or the way we interpret it, yeah. which is the beauty of, you know, all these different ways to make things. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think the reason I'm kind of being a little bit of a stickler for this point is uh, is just because I feel that there are there is uh, lots of creative activity that is uh, not understood as art because of the context that it exists right. in and not just for my own personal kind of <laughs> pleasure of being able to discover art in everything wherever I go but also just I think um, although I think that is actually maybe that is still I was about to kind of say that there's a politics that's separate from that somehow but actually I think there is you know what's politics for if it's not for improving our lives and I think that if we have a limited conception of what can be considered art and like don't get me wrong like we can have cultural conversations like focused academic specific you know uh historically referenced cultural conversations that might be kind of islands within the vast kind of field of human activity but i think for me i have just like I've always been in and out of different things. Like I've, like I was saying before, I was DJing. I was making music for a friend of mine that's a fashion designer. I, like I, there was I always in a way had a slight dissatisfaction with the cultural reach of the art world, in the sense right. that the young people that surrounded me when I was coming up were engaged in something that felt very real, very embodied, very vital in terms of culture, you know, and there was you know crossovers with music and nightlife and parties and squatting and collaborative efforts and performances and things like that and i um i wanted to resonate with that and be within that rather than kind of step away from that and put all of my energies into being sanctioned by uh i don't even know if that's the right word sanctioned but uh approved by a system that kind of says, you know, if it happens within a gallery, then we can discuss it in that way. And so, you know, I've come across so much sort of cultural and creative and artistic richness in other fields that I think that as an experiencer of art and as not as somebody that has to gatekeep art for any reason, I would always go bigger when I'm right. when I'm thinking about it and talking about it. Um, because otherwise we miss out on so much. It's there's the idea that like the canons of art history are in the kind of like single digits or even hundreds of artists is like 
it's it's an artificial scarce, scarcity as far as i'm concerned right um well the point you just made i would i was about to say that i'm with you 150 percent, but i really think that i'm with you 250 <laughs> percent. because i just that's the way i feel i mean you know i think we're of a generation i mean you're a little bit younger than i am but um you know we've lived through a certain amount of making we you know we went through the art school period of that energy and then coming out and trying to like make things happen and collaborating and you know i work with musicians all the time on my animations and Mm. you know i've had people play at my openings and you know i've tried to merge and collaborate and do a lot of different things and there's a great energy in that that is separate from you know the quote-unquote canon art world stuff and some of the you know, the art world stuff really sucks the energy out of the room when it comes to that with the, well, you know, it is a business The people are trying to sell work and make a living off of it and all that stuff. So, but yeah, that energy I think is really, and, and a lot of that is gray undefined area where the magic of that stuff happens. And I've been fortunate enough through the podcast when speak and speak, which I started just as I don't know why I just started it. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have any ideas of like, Oh, I'm going to do this for this. It was just, I just started doing it. It's become one of the most fulfilling things in my life of just Mm. talking to people, you know, which if you, if you took me in graduate school, I would have said, well, I hope I can show my work in galleries and like people can see it and experience kind of like what I'm thinking about. Now it's like, yeah, that's great. But I also love talking to artists. I love collaborating with musicians. I love, teaching, you know, all that other stuff, which becomes really fulfilling in a different way, which I think is, I, I'm guessing is in line with what you're talking about, which is like the raison d'etre of, you know, of being an artist or making work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, 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 yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's, it was just my experience, you know, like for me, it was going to clubs, it was dressing up, it was spending three hours probably longer making outfits with friends like out of things we bought in charge shops in the street and uh yeah that's that that energy and the kind of playful collaborative to our to our own audience in a sense where yeah we were each other's audiences um that you know that felt like something very precious and um something that wouldn't uh, necessarily directly translate to being transferred to a gallery, in a sense. Right. Um, Yeah. And I think at certain points I felt regret for not having kind of literalized the social aspect of my practice within gallery spaces earlier in my career because I was kind of like... I felt like I was... I mean, I was like... When I wrote about Warhol for my dissertation, I was also researching Joseph Boyce as a kind of counterpart, sort of flip side of maybe the same coin in some parallel universe. Um, And, you know, he obviously talks about social sculpture. So I was very much thinking about social sculpture and then the factory. And then, you know, I was uh, squatting this 7,000 square foot building. We had sort of 10 people living there and people with their studios there, people would come by and make a film, something like that. And yeah, at certain points I kind of thought, wow, I really should have like taken all of that and somehow just like put it inside a gallery and said, 
put it inside a white cube space and said like this is this is this is my art because I was thinking about it in that way and not in the sense that I wanted to kind of like lay claim to the creative endeavors of the people around me but that I was thinking about that co-creative space of collaboration but also scene and um and yeah sort of creative gangs in a way um how that comes hard, together though. yeah but it's it's isn't it hard when you try to like jam that into a gallery <laughs> i mean i <laughs> do you know what i mean totally like, and i didn't does it have the same effect does it do you lose you know it's like you know a punk show at the, at the metropolitan opera house or something right. does it does it really work or do you have to be at cbgb's you know what I mean? To really, to really get it. It's tricky. Yeah. And I think, but I know what you're saying. You wanted to, you wanted, to, <laughs> in hindsight, I wanted, wanted to, to at the time right. I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I was just like, I felt, I don't know. It felt weird. Like I was like, Oh no, no that I kind of can't do that or something. And I think, you know, I thinking back now, I realized that in a way, without necessarily explicitly realizing I think it, it, that was an institutional critique in a way um, yeah. in terms of like what those spaces do and um, I think things are sh have really shifted in terms of public art spaces becoming more accessible um, but it didn't feel the same <laughs> it, I don't think it yeah right. and and there were there were versions of things that popped up in galleries uh and sometimes that energy was able to be recreated but yeah yeah no it's 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 a it's a great sort of like area to explore you know it's funny i had for one of my shows actually when haunch of venison opened up a a space in um in rockefeller center and i had a show there and i had no such thing perform at the opening hmm. which i thought was going to be i mean it was great but you know, it was cool, but it, he just played the opening and, you know, but then I've had an, an, an opportunity to make visuals for musicians and then it's projected when they're playing in a venue mm. and it's totally different. It's it's way more exciting mm. because it's like the people weren't expected. They're not going to my show. They're just going and then they see the stuff. And I feel like it's, I don't know, it's, it, I, I guess to your point, it's, it's, it's cool to like show these things, to do things at different to sort of subvert the expectations of where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And it creates a different experience when it's changed. You know, one of the, the great parts about talking to people is it's funny because in looking at your work, I would imagine, I don't know. I just, I guess that the conversation would maybe teeter into this idea of sort of the digital versus the analog and, you know, c putting the finger on the button of, cause your work really feels like now. You know, it feels like this exploration between the manipulation of technology and the body and the post-human and all that stuff. But I love that we're talking about tinctures. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's... And walking through the woods and, you know, it's it's great. This is why these... <laughs> that artists need to be able to be heard, I think, you know, because when you see work, you have an expectation of, of maybe what that artist is thinking or what they're about. And sometimes it's it's not... Just like in Warhol, you know, everyone thought Warhol was this like, you know, star fucker who was just like, all he cared about was like being famous. And they didn't realize he was this really quirky, you know, uncomfortable 
guy from Pittsburgh who was basically living outside of his shell, you know? I mean, I feel like he might have had a hand in that, but... <laughs> a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I, I mean, maybe we should go there with the digital stuff. I mean, I... I I, I, yeah, I, I understand why you would say that. And, um, but I think that, um, I feel like with my digital work, there is, I am always trying to kind of move towards something that is about embodiment and wholesomeness. And I, I I don't I don't experience the same kind of panicked separation that I see a lot of people talking about in relation to like the digital versus like real life. Right. And I'm kind of like which part of the digital doesn't occur within real life? And <laughs> as people spend 23 hours a day connected to this. I mean that phone that brain. that's the big that's the big um kind of uh disconnect that i think is that there is there is a future shock nostalgia thing happening where um essentially the experience of being on the internet is so negative and simultaneously addictive that there's this huge denial of the extent to which our lives are digital, let alone right. let alone how that was amplified by the pandemic and Zoom for many people. Um, but but essentially, our lives are digital. We live in digital spaces, but we are using platforms that are designed to psychologically destabilize us um, for long enough. I guess, to encourage people to be susceptible to advertising or overshare their data. Um, and I kind of, I think that because we don't want, because we feel like that isn't happening to the extent that it is, there's there's kind of like, in my mind, not enough uh, eyes on designing how we move through those spaces in ways that are more engaged with our like highest values essentially and how we want to live and so for me um yeah the reason that i'm like working in a digital space and trying to make these things that feel uh good (laughs) is because i think that we deserve to feel good on the internet Right, and I think that it's possible, um, and so <laughs> these are like my contribution to that. <laughs> right, oh, that's really interesting. I mean, we're, we it's human nature. I mean, we're this is the way we are. We will deny. It's kind of like if you think about the environment, we're like completely like destroying this place, but we're like, oh, we're gonna take initiatives to, or there's just deniers who are like, no, everything's fine. What are you talking about? global warming everything's cool you know we until something like like we just don't want to come to terms with our like addictive nature to just do things the way we want to do them even if it's 
could be detrimental, you know what I mean? Or too much. And then we pretend that it's not happening. Yeah. I think there's, I think that's true. And I, but I also think that the environments on the internet are controlled by nefarious systems. Like, of course. um, Well, I was going to say too, look at the stock market, same thing. Or like, you know, look at finance. It's like a similar parallel world that we just, oh, it's doing great. Or it's like there's a different reality there Yeah, but to our relationship to but it. But lots of people don't have any conscious exposure to that. I guess I'm talking literally about the insidious nature of algorithms and right. um, the way that things are designed to essentially like trigger people. Um, because like people who don't feel good about themselves are more likely to respond positively to advertising. Um, And I think that we underestimate how much that colors our experience of the internet. And I think the other thing is, is that um, I think people underestimate like what um, they kind of, there's something about digital things that feels constructed in a way that people think a painting is not which is crazy because it's entirely constructed. It's, it's, it's not the thing that it depicts. It's, it's its own thing, which is a thing (laughs) that tries to talk about other things. Um, And everybody's kind of comfortable with that, but it's like, I just, I don't, for me, digital tools are tools and digital image making tools are tools to make images. And there are definitely unique, arguably magical qualities to digital tools and what can be created um but i think that there's a kind of it's a little bit like i mean the transition from like film photography to digital image making and things like that you know there is always going to be a nostalgia for the older technology even if the older technology was also the disruptor of its day um right and so yeah, and I also, you know, have this thing where people talk about digital works, although my works obviously have physical presences, but they talk about digital work as being, like, immaterial. I mean, I just did it myself. My work has physical presences. <laughs> the, my point is, <laughs> I've totally just undermined, is that digital um, digital art that lives on screens and things like that. People say, oh, it's it's not physical. But the hardware that is required to encounter the work is physical in the same way that a canvas is physical. Right. And my argument is basically that um, uh, digital art on screens has magical abilities and we associate magic with immateriality sort of like things floating around and zapping from here to there. So there is this kind of spiritual connotation of something that is almost like spirit-based because a digital artwork can recreate itself in in its undocumented form, i.e. its original state, instantly across the world. It can be, you know, viewed. It can be moving. You know, paintings are not animated (laughs) unless there are on a screen or projected or something like that and and those capacities are something yeah i don't know i i'm right there with you i i think it's 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 a great 
conversation because there's so many. We do default to our ideas about what things are, you know, mm-hmm. what they mean, what it means to have something on a screen versus hanging on the wall. And, you know, it's they're kind of I also think, too, that and I judge this based on some people that I know who are older. It Sometimes it's where you enter the river. You know, it's like mm-hmm. when you come into the game and I don't think younger kids are going to really have that you know that issue as much as yeah. some of the older generations because they're much more comfortable in the medium so they don't the hierarchy is different you know i teach digital painting and you know there's there's so many i mean the kids come from all you know some of them want to do background design for games some of them want to do graphic design some of them you know it it's all it animation it runs the gambit and they don't care it's not you know, they're all just making images. Yeah. They're not so worried about it. So I imagine like people like my kids who grow up with it, you know, from the jump, mm. it's, they're going to be like, what are you talking, who cares? Like, I think it happens in music a little less because I think people are more okay with whether something was, a, it's a drum machine or it's drums, you know? Yeah. I remember a day when it was a real issue. Right. But it seems to be now like no one's saying like, oh, that Kanye record was good, but... <laughs> How much of that did was played? Right. How much was on a you know programmed or whatever? It's not really happening anymore. Yeah, I mean Bob it Bob Dylan much. picking up the electric guitar is a good example. Yeah, shock and awe. People were <laughs> offended. Right. <laughs> I I told I probably told this story before. The first time I saw Nobukazu Takamura play live, and it was just a laptop. I was like perplexed. I couldn't believe I was excited, but I was just like, wait a minute. He's staring at a computer. It was so weird. You know, now it's like, you know, it doesn't matter. But, you know, that change of medium, it's, you know, like calculators or whatever. <laughs> you know, my, my kid takes his, his phone to school and they're allowed to have their phone during school, which to me, I was like, oh my God, like, how could they do that? Are they allowed, you know? And now it's just it's part of the it's part of us in a way and are, th- are there regulations on like sort of like can he be i don't know filming tiktok in a class or like i think you're not supposed to but <laughs> right you see them <laughs> right there's like downtime i'm sure at the end of class and they're not okay. so worried about you know posting something but there are posts during the day mm-hmm. i mean you know we just had like an event where there was a shooting in a brooklyn subway yesterday right and, you know, I saw people posting it, you know, like kids, you know, like my, my you know, it, it's the the way information moves, you know, you can't, it's almost like it hit a crescendo to where you can't try to stop it anymore. Hmm. Yeah, I heard about that. I'm sorry. That must be stressful to be around. Yeah, I mean, I've been living in New York for 23 years now. I've seen a lot of, you know, you, not that you become desensitized, but, you know, there's going to be crazy people who do stuff, mm. you know. I mean, there's, there's this, for me, it's even more disturbing, like, school shootings where kids go into schools in the suburbs and, like, shoot up a school. I mean, yeah. that's, like, you know, that, anyways, we won't get into, like, guns and all that stuff. I mean, that's another topic. But, yeah, it's, you know, I th- I think we technology is changing so quickly, too, that I think the speed of digestion also makes things blurry, you know. Even in the art world, if you think about it, like, I remember the first time I saw, like, video art, you know, like, Bill Viola, I think it was, or some, you know, and it was really, or Tony Ausler, and it was like, whoa, that's crazy, you know, is that, what is that? And, you know, within 
10 or 15 years, it's just completely shifted, you know. So maybe these are transition issues of like, was this real? I mean, do you get it a lot with your work of people saying like, well, I don't know. Is it really painting or like, you know, stuff like that? Um, Not so much. And people seem to be pretty into it. Like your work is really great and people seem to be really into it. So, you know. Thank you. I mean, I don't think it would be that bad, right? If someone's like, yeah, well, is, is it a real painting? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's changed. Um, so I guess I was first like printing because I was making a, a lot of photography work. Um, although arguably photography is still part of the process, um, sort of physical photography and virtual photography. Um, but, uh, I guess at the beginning there was a question around like, I don't know, it came up less than I expected even at the beginning because the paintings themselves were literally printed. Um, and they didn't have on linen though, right? I printed stuff on wood and yeah wood and linen i think at the the beginning i'm trying to remember whether wood and perspex so i did some on acrylic um but yeah there was there wasn't i kind of thought there might be more pushback in terms of like it's not a real painting um because you know obviously warhol was screen printing but there's so much of the hand in that And, um, you know, I was sending a file to a printer who would print stuff. And obviously, I would then sign it off or not. Um, And there were fluctuations that come from the printing process, that come from the material. And actually, there are some of the first ones that I was doing on linen. I wasn't able to uh, kind of... It wasn't it wasn't working technically. And so I was hand painting underpainting essentially. So all of the areas that were printed, I had to print paint white and then send it to the printers and then they would al- try and align the image to print over the white. So there are I don't know how many, but there are a few works where essentially there's, there's quite laborious hand painting part of the process. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I like to try and cover those up, you know, and be a purist to the to the digital printing right. <laughs> approach. That felt like a it now. felt like a failure that I had to. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm obviously being slightly sarcastic, but um, yeah. it was that was a part of the process, and then I sort of had this idea after talking to somebody about how they were doing some 2.5D printing about where it was kind of a textured surface uh, and firing all the ink heads at once to build up a thicker layer of ink. And I kind of persuaded the printers to try something that they said definitely wouldn't work. And I was like, can you just humor me? I'm the kind of person that needs to see something not working to understand why it doesn't work. Right. And it worked. And um, yeah, and so I have this slightly raised surface that has a little bit of texture from the curvature of the brush strokes and things like that. And I think that in a way, that slight elevation 
from the surface of the canvas um, and a little bit of texture shifts the eye in the sense that people look at it and they they don't have the same feeling as when they're looking at something which is printed which is entirely flat isn't it funny it's like one millimeter will change i would say it's actually vibe i wish it was more but (laughs) no yeah like the microscopic like change of elevation will just be like oh okay yeah and it's interesting because i really you know post um post nfts which have now given artists the ability to kind of assign one of one status to anything if you sort of are inside the conceptual ecosystem um because not everybody (laughs) resonates with nfts right right you may have heard not everyone buys it um (laughs) but i think um really because i was making digital art you know and looking for a way to tell people it was important and worth investing in and worth understanding in the cultural history of painting, of religious painting. And uh, <laughs> and so I developed this technique to make something that kind of really felt like a painting that had the kind of vibes of a painting. And looking back now, it's very clear that although that was a creative problem, process it was also like a problem solving thing of like like they need to have the aura of of paintings for them to kind of like function experientially and right. and commercially in the way that i wanted them to and um now i'm kind of like as i let the sort of implications of nfts and virtual assets sort of wash over me because it feels like it's a real process of exposure understanding integration reshaping as i go um it's very explorative um it feels like i'm like oh this is like a much much slicker version of me making complicated prints and what's interesting is is that in a weird way it's also made me love the prints um and maybe that's you know that's that's my own maybe that's my own nostalgia um but i yeah so because i think that the i mean i think the painting as an art form is so rich and so deep and you know endless um um but i also think that culturally part of its sort of mimetic staying power is down to its ability to function in the way that NFTs do. It's not quite as financially liquid as um, NFTs are. Um, NFTs seem to have kind of accelerated that uh, with their own spectacle. Um, But it's but it, but that idea of a thing having one of one, only you can have it unequivocally. Although, of course, there are scams and fraudulencies in, in both painting and NFTs. Um, but I, I kind of, it makes me think, well, what will artists of the future do? They've 
now that they've maybe been liberated from the need to kind of at some point say to themselves well I guess I should make a wall-based work like what would a wall-based work by me as an artist look like which I think is a fantastic question and a fun question for anyone that sort of doesn't make paintings to kind of ask themselves well maybe if I did make paintings what would they be like I love that yeah and yeah I've often asked that of, I don't know, musician friends or like somebody who makes things and, and you kind of see them go off. And so there is that, that like, that sort of vortex of potentiality that is, you know, equal parts, the magic of what can happen in the process, but also connecting to the, to the cultural history of all of that focused activity. Sure. You know, one of the, the interesting things about NFT. Well, actually, the avant-garde and the reason I think people have a hard time with it is I think human nature is we're comforted by familiarity. And maybe that's like a survival technique of like if something's weird or, you know, surprises you, you know, you go into defense mode. And so it just even extends to things you don't know. Like, you know, the NFT thing is like, you know, it's just the NFTs have kind of existed in an analog form. It just wasn't called NFT, you know, a certificate of authenticity or there's like things that you would give with something, whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. But people just tend to if they don't know, they're skeptical. And then when there's hype, as soon as something sells for like, you know, three million dollars and it's a little drawing of a gorilla or something, (laughs) people are like, ah, come on. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that, that inherently or Jackson Pollock. You know, right. like how many people see a Pollock and like, come on, that, you know, $10 million for that, my kid could do that. Whatever it is, you know, I think skepticism it, is linked sometimes to uh, a infamiliarity with, with what it is or something that's new or mm. they can't understand. And I don't know how kind of, uh, how much of a conscious thing it is, but I also wonder whether or not there are aspects of what's happening uh culturally with nfts where people are almost like trolling the art world right um and (laughs) uh you know maybe creatives that the art world wouldn't have given the time of day to or something but yeah it's subverting it right for sure i mean it's going around this quote-unquote canon or the structure of it which people I'm sure some people are like, well, you can't, you know. Well, if, if nothing, it's it's exciting. It's not boring. <laughs> it's, you know. No, I mean? no, no. I mean, I, it's I, the, I, I mean, I, I, yeah. And I think that it's rich with potential. And I think that um, that's why artists should be exploring it because culturally, I think it's going to impact on everything. And as I kind of said before, we have to be, I think, um, you know, we have to be part of things to be able to shape them right. and design their cultural legacies. And artists are sensitive people who value, who sometimes, <laughs> sometimes value beauty and meaning over power and money. And yeah. um, and so I think that, I mean, maybe I'm being too optimistic about the inherent <laughs> qualities of artists, but. Um, but I do think that artists care about, I don't, uh, yeah, artists seem, they care about things that are beyond money, even if they are also like other people um, 
also motivated by uh through necessity and greed money right i well i think some of it to an extent too could be structure as well like if you think about it it's almost like a stockholm syndrome of you know if you're an artist who's you know mid-career or something you've spent your whole life going to art school and like studying the system and trying to work within the constraints of the weird art world structure and then and then that gets thrown on its head you're like oh we can't do that we can't go around this i spent my whole life working in this structure you know what i mean so i think it's yeah and scary for also like i you know you could somebody might think to themselves i've spent my whole life making huge compromises yes bending myself to fit inside this restrictive archaic (laughs) system that yeah I think I think for me the main thing that is clear because these periods of like technological upheaval usually the things that everybody the hot takes that everybody shares about what this means what will happen where it's going they're usually all wrong right like right, right. like we kind of think oh you know like whatever people were saying during the dot com boom and things like that it's uh, it's different to what the internet ended up becoming um but the one thing that i have discovered and is just that not discover the thing that that has come that i've become more aware of is just how many artists there are and how much appetite there is for their work yeah it's pretty great and i bought the lie a little bit that if you like if that the people who like value are are like kind of rich culture people, you know. On on a level, I kind of thought, yeah, no, I I need a gallery. I need to go through this route, and it's something that I put a lot of energy into. Um, not necessarily strategically pursuing, but internally, I wanted it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, and, um, and a lot of that is to do with what I was talking about at the very beginning, which is like the way that, uh, art at certain points in my life became something that was about seeking approval, you know, experiencing, you know, being bullied at school and things like that, then it's kind of like you go back out into the world and there's there's an unconscious aspect of like, I'll show you like actually all the ways that I am are worth something and wanting to prove that rather than just to be that in a more simple way. Right. Um, and <laughs> that's inevitably a painful process um, if you realize that it's happening. And I think that, you know, before I found out about NFTs and thought about exploring, you know, that world, uh, um, I was kind of in a process of unlearning the ways that I had committed to earning the respect of people that I didn't necessarily respect myself. Like, oh, I wish that person thought I was cool or serious or something. Right, yeah. And, you know, and realizing that um, 
sort of going where the love is rather than trying to go find it in something else that isn't necessarily coming towards me naturally that you know that I feel like I was kind of going through that process and I think that that meant that as I discovered NFTs as someone who had been encultured outside of that world that very much wasn't there at the beginning so to speak um it meant that I was open to the idea that there was another way of doing things. Uh, and I thought at the very least, this is very much in the spirit of my intention to make art that resonates outside of art galleries, because that that is consistent. That is there when I was squatting department stores and throwing parties and putting performance art in, onto the dance floor and then experimenting with fashion photography and thinking that because that was kind of mediated in magazines that that somehow broke through it. Um, and uh, because a lot of the stuff that's happening in the NFT world is outside of the cultural reach of the art world. And to me, what is apparent is that the art world in its current form couldn't um, serve the needs of that many artists and so many of the artists that I've connected through connected to through what people refer to as the NFT community something that I was slightly cynical about when I first kind of came into the space and saw people talking about it on Twitter um, but part of the reason for that was that in the art world whether expressed directly or not there is competition between artists. And it's not to say that there's not competition in the NFT space. Um, but I think I, I wasn't used to the idea that artists would support each other. Most of my creative friends were, most, I have many friends who are artists, but the majority were people in other fields. Right. So we could kind of comfortably collaborate without it being... I guess edgy. I think my first boyfriend... Actually, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, yeah, we had some competition. We were both artists. Right. Well, I think <laughs> one, one quick note about that whole process is, you know, back before technology and how technology is changing, there was, like, to your... I think you alluded to it. There wasn't the ability, really, to go outside. So you had to partake in this method to get your work out there and i always think that music is a great parallel investigation to making artwork and right. it's i mean it's record labels you know what i mean and then all of a sudden soundcloud happened or people could just post mm -hmm. their music online and it totally changed it and you know now record labels are basically you know investing in spotify or trying to get through streaming or work out those deals so they could still survive in a way but they realize mm. that you know there's this other way now to get out the message you know it ha doesn't have to go yeah. through them printing records anymore so anyone can do it really and um mm. and i think you know you start to see you know galleries emailing you about hey what do you think of nfts and you know stuff like that. you know it, it they're going to want to get involved in that process as well because there's a realization that there's a lot of artists out there and they're going to want to show they're going to want to engage with the public in a different way you know 
same thing with like social media. I mean, there's so many artists who have gotten their their foot in the door through that instead of having to go through the gallery structure necessarily. You know. Yeah. It's just changing. And I, I, yeah, and I think it's worth adding that the the galleries that I work with have been hugely supportive of me making NFTs. Yeah. And um, but I think that the fact remains is that with all the good intention in the world it's just not possible for the number of galleries that exist in the world to create and nurture the level of creativity that is out there. And yeah. And what I was going to say before about, as I've met artists made friends with artists um, who are also making and selling NFTs is that they, um, I'm watching their work like evolve at this kind of lightning pace because they have sometimes self-imposed sometimes coming in because there's this you know a lot of interest and hype around nfts so people are looking to kind of commission people to do nft adjacent projects and things like that but there are these there are these deadlines there's an audience there's affirmation around their work and i think about the impact of like having my first show the way that I stepped my own game up for that and then each time there was a show there was a feeling of like okay well I've really got to get myself together because this has to be better than the last thing that I did and I think that you know some artists have the gift and the ability to just work they just you mentioned earlier another podcast where somebody was drawing just continuously through and it's like um but I think that some artists struggle and they struggle with anxiety they struggle with self-doubt and they struggle with procrastination and um it's hard but if you are a procrastinator a deadline helps definitely yeah (laughs) and so it isn't enough to find precocious talent and then show what has been made we have to support nurture invest create opportunities for people who are enthusiastic like that is enough to get going and people lots some people are technically good from the get-go and it's very obvious some people just really have a vibe right and it's opportunity that shapes them and so i kind of think that we exist in a world where images are everywhere. And so in that sense, art is everywhere. It's true. And I think that at the moment, a lot of that sort of art in terms of images is advertising and everybody's bored of that. <laughs> and like, you, just want to skip you know, ad. it doesn't skip ad. <laughs> right. It doesn't really work. And actually I kind of, I feel like, you know, all imagine if all of the energy that went into creating commercial imagery was like released into the wild and people could just be making art. And rather than buying the thing that the advertising that the artist had to make under duress, I mean, not always, lots of people make creative commercial work and absolutely love it. And that is their process. And I wouldn't want to disrespect that or over romanticize the idea of being one's own boss. But there's a part of me that thinks like we don't have to be working for the machine. We could right. just be all making our dreams, you know, and investing in our dreams 
and finding the people that resonate with that, connecting to those people and uplifting them with our work. And I don't know. I mean, one of the other kind of amazing things that happened when I came into the NFT space was that I was connecting with people, um, tons and tons of artists, talking to all different types of artists. Um, and aesthetically, I didn't resonate with everything that I was experiencing. And I kind of was like, okay, so I'm being as open-minded as I can. I can feel that this is a moment of like transformation. This is a real historical moment. And I don't want my biases to like get in the way. So I was like, I'm just going to suspend my aesthetic sensibilities and try and just like enter into this moment. And this is informed by... I guess in a way by meditation practice of wanting to actually try and go to the direct perception and not be distracted by whatever cultural conditioning or thoughts are like coming in the way of that. And I kind of took sort of some of that mindfulness and tried to kind of apply it to the way that I was looking at art and the art that I was experiencing. And I had this kind of wonderful, like, aesthetic ego death where I suddenly was just like wait like it's not real I was trapped in this thing that has built up over my life like there's no reason to say that one <laughs> aesthetic sensibility is superior to another right. yeah and and I was just I felt like I was like freewheeling through this kind of kaleidoscopic experience of art that had previously been like artificially turned down like I was like that's not the kind of thing that I think is cool so you know whatever and and inevitably as with any sort of ego death it creeps back in you know <laughs> right right it's always there <laughs> and, uh, on your shoulder <laughs> right and so because for a while I was like I just I I I like all art this is amazing I'm having such incredible experiences talking to artists because I'm so open-minded, like, and it, it felt so rich. And and in a way, I was kind of like, well, what do I like? You know, do I do I not have an aesthetic identity anymore? And that kind of came back in, and I was like, well, yeah, actually, maybe it's a little bit more open-minded now. But it but it sort of it came back in. But also, what came back in with it, or what stayed, in a sense was the realization that on some level um, I love all art and that's something where I can not necessarily like art but on the level of I can still love it in the sense that like I feel like love is in a sense holding space for something without wanting to change it right like it's just allowing something to be and being able to kind of enjoy it not want yeah not wanting something to be different is like and in a way that stayed because i'd seen through <laughs> this like strong aesthetic identity which now seems kind of laughable even if it comes back in but now it's just like a little preference um and and as a result and i think it's also just from being more vulnerable to the idea that even if i don't like somebody's art it doesn't mean that it's not 
deeply transformative to them and to their audience of you know the people that resonate with it definitely and and i think that feels like a good thing to hold on to um and and so in a way that was part of the process of like fully coming back to this thing of like really believing in art because it's easier to believe in it when it's for everyone than when it's like this kind of quite shut down idea of like what it should be even if I didn't really believe that I was holding on to something that was as restrictive as that. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, I had a sudden, well, not sudden, a transformative experience like that with teaching because I feel like, you know, at the beginning, there's stuff that you just identify with aesthetically that you resonates or you like, you quote unquote like it. And then when you're doing critiques and stuff and you hear people mm. talking all day about, I really like that one. And there's no reason. They're just like, I like that one. And it's okay. You like it. But then what, what is it though? Like, what is it getting <laughs> at or what is working in it? You know what I mean? And you start to leave your aesthetics at the door and you start mm-hmm. to try to say, is this work connecting or is there the thing that I get sidetracked by because I do love all art and, but I love art that has, a sort of conviction to it or there's there's a desire to make it you know because when you're teaching you do see a lot of art that just feels like mm, i just i just and you even have students, some students are like yeah i don't know i just kind of made this one i don't you know they don't believe in it or they're just like they just did the assignment and that art's hard to get behind because mm-hmm. there's no real sort of like they're not really bringing anything to the table they're just doing it to do it and i think if people have passion or they, they put their heart in it. Like I, I'm kind of a romantic when it comes to that. I feel like that means something like really believing in what mm. you're doing or, or really, you know, committing to it in a way, you know, but there's probably great work where yeah. people are, you know, half into it and <laughs> not committed to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I just wrote a song. And I mean, you know, surely yeah. I, I just played three chords. No, I mean, and I, 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 and, and, and it might be great, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting because, like, and I, I think earlier you referred to something about people enjoying making art. Yeah, and um, uh, I, it's I haven't always enjoyed making art, um, and there were points where, and I think I always felt compelled to make art. Um, but I think that I was experiencing so much self-doubt during the process. Like I used to think that my art was like too colorful, like too kind of like queer or something, or like sort of too aesthetically motivated, too fashion-y or something. And, um, I don't think that anymore. I'm sort of like... I don't know. I'm just like happy that what has come out of me has come out of me. Um, it's almost like it's exactly and, right if you do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it always it, it is in hindsight, you know. And even the things there are things that I've really disliked at the time of making it and felt very like, why did I do this? This is it's embarrassing. Like like there are things where I felt embarrassed. And I've understood afterwards that it's because the work ultimately was emotionally vulnerable. Right. So I've made work when I was going through a kind of challenging psychological period. And I've looked back at it 
And I've just been like, oh, why did I make art in that period? <laughs> like, I've I've leaked into right. the work. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is so embarrassing. And, like, no one wants to see this. That's part of the journey. Like, I was like, why have I burdened? I, I mean, it's so obvious if anyone else said to me what I was saying to myself. Right. I would be like, are you kidding me? That's the point <laughs> of art. Like, whereas, you know, in myself, I was just like, oh, God. Like, I can't bear it. But actually, you know... At the same time, there is, you know, there's a collector who came to me about a work from that show and told me a very personal story about why one of the works resonates with him on a level that he struggles to describe. And I was kind of like, okay. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> At first, I was like, really? Yeah, and he sent me a video over Instagram and was just like, I just want to introduce myself so I'm not just like another typing, like, Bot. avatar right. or whatever, like, profile picture. And he was like, hey, you know, and he, and he kind of said how meaningful it was to him. And he, there was something about what he described and the place that he was in psychologically where I suddenly was like, oh, right. So where I was, it wasn't that his experience was the same as mine in terms of his life experience that had taken him to this place of like, like deep intensity and suffering. And he was, I was just like, you've been there too. And like, so in a way, <laughs> And again, it's so obvious looking at somebody else's work, you know, but it, it was just this thing of like, oh, like not only am I not a burden in that way, the work itself can actually be healing to somebody else who is like, oh, I'm not alone because I can feel some sort of resonating energy from this and I know it. And yeah, so that sort of helped me understand that it's like you don't even have to like the work or feel good about it you just have to keep doing it <laughs> yeah and you can't get to where you are without going through that stuff and the other thing i think as artists is like yeah you know at least something we try to teach is you know it i look at early work and it's there's a lot of cringy stuff there but i mean you know, I wouldn't be where I am now without going through that. And other people, like when I, you know, tell my students that, hey, I was, when I was in undergraduate school, I made a lot of crappy work, you know, but I couldn't have made the work that I made after that if I didn't go through that. It's like failure. Like failure is hard to look back at. If you're a figure skater and you're watching old video of you falling over and over again, it's like, oh, geez, like, you know, I, I really messed up in that competition. But you can't get to the point to where you need to be if you don't go through those failures, you know, to, to get stronger and to get the reps in and, you know, it's part of the process. It's sometimes it's painful if it's on tape <laughs> or if you show the work or, you know, if there's, there's, uh, there's I, evidence of it, but you know, it's part of the, I'm it's not part sure of the trip, you know, at least I think so. I agree. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent sure that the, well, I was just going to say that I'm not 100% sure that they're failures. Oh, no, um, they're not. But, because, but sometimes they're seen. And not in the sense where it's like, but they're a failure because they lead to something else. I 
think that your early work doesn't resonate with you it might with somebody else Definitely. and i think that the analogy of the ice skater who falls down there is a very yeah but i was gonna say that i don't think that analogy works because within ice skating there's a very clear cultural convention that falling down is a problem in art it's not true that's right you're exactly right you the mistakes so aren't like that yeah that's true you think you fell over you still judge those works which is okay and normal and i still judge a lot of my works <laughs> but it doesn't that's that's an idea and it's an opinion and those things are um not necessarily static right you know, for you or other people so who knows the, you may you may love them more than your later work well the better analogy would be me looking at my high school photos at how i dressed <laughs> that was i would say that's a failure <laughs> But at the time, it no it felt cool, and then like looking at it later in life, you're like, oh, that's actually pretty cool, you know. Like the it things change in go. context, <laughs> and you know, it's not actually a failure, but you know, it we we you have to move through things. I think you know, I I you know yeah, I I love okay. looking at the un- early underlying point I mean. of any artist. You know what I mean? Or like looking back through time of, you know, sometimes it can be difficult, but it's it's really. I don't know. There's something to be mm. just a value in it for sure. You know, some, you know, some bands mm. nail it on their first record. Like they can never hit that again. I think, you know, there's, there's some, sometimes mm. you hit like a magical moment in your development to where you just, not that the other stuff isn't good, but you, there's a magic of a time or a place or a spot where you are. That's just, it's hard to define, but that's the beauty of it. It's all subjective. What did you DJ? Mm. Like, what kind of music? That does seem to be. What were you spinning? I'm really curious about that. These club nights that Uh, you're DJing and what what's on the records? Is it um, house? Is it like what you? The analogy. Disco. I mean, uh, all of the above. Um, (laughs) I. uh, Yeah, I guess I was playing sort of. It was a lot of a lot of stuff mixed together. So I was playing like house, electro, techno, um, and a lot of kind of uh, sort of things like Baltimore Club, Brazilian ballet funk, uh, but then sort of taking leave from some of those tracks that sampled like pop music and things like that and dropping in. 80s pop music a lot of I mean I was I kind of came up around the whole like electro clash thing in the early noughties and so I was into that sort of I guess there was like an 80s sound and a 90s style or something and I guess I was playing that but then that segued into um I was playing like blog house and like yeah like a lot of different things and I, and i guess in a similar way to the way that i sort of probably definitely at that time would have judged the work that i was making with djing i would also 
kind of I felt like I was the guy that played like super cheesy non-serious things but then I would speak to serious DJs I mean there were probably almost definitely 100% definitely serious DJs who loathed my DJ sets <laughs> but there were also serious DJs who I respected who were really into what I was playing and were like no you always know what will literally make people go crazy or something um and so yeah it felt very creative i dj'd at a club night called boom boombox mm -hmm. which was um <clears throat> a kind of fashion oriented largely electro night but i sort of played what i wanted and at the time like vogue referred to it as like the coolest club in the world um like i guess like I'm trying to remember whether Kate Moss DJ'd and then like, like Kylie was there and like so celebrities would turn up but it was sort of like very much like a club kid scene and it was every Sunday night I was a resident DJ there and that was a lot of fun um, Did you have a different DJ name? Wow um, <laughs> <laughs> Of course you did, right? <coughs> yeah, so the art collective that I was involved in uh, when I was squatting was called Wow Wow. And that was spelled all capitals with exclamation mark either end. Of course. So like W-O-W-O-W, -W -O -W, Wow Wow. Nice. So it's this kind of spectacle embracement um, that sort of highlighted performance and excitement, exuberance and optimism. Uh, and so I was Matthew Wow Wow because I was associated with Wow Wow. Matthew of Wow Wow. Um, nice. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't really Matthew of Wawa. But I have an earlier DJ name, which was Matthew Love and his orchestra. don't know if you know Jeff Love and his orchestra. He was a kind of 1960s guy who would do cover versions of pop songs oh, in orchestral this. in orchestral styles. Nice. So there's a, he does a really good version of Painted Black by the Rolling Stones. Um, that's very cinematic. Um, and so I kind of lifted his name, Matthew... Matthew Love and his orchestra then became Ma that sort of shortened to Matthew Love. And then when Wow Wow happened, uh, I became Matthew Wow Wow. Um, but there were, I mean, I, I sort of, it was, it was a fun and interesting time in terms of like club stuff when I was DJing because things were really kind of crossing over uh, in terms of musically. So you had like grime, electro, indie, um all sort of going all over each other yeah. and i remember playing one night after kano who's a grime artist and the crowd was like people who'd come to see a grime artist perform like uh sort of indie rock kids uh electro heads uh like queer fashionistas and everybody stayed for my set and it was this like utopian moment in my life and um halfway through playing quite arguably quite a like hard set I dropped Don't Stop Me Now by Queen and <laughs> somebody who had clearly just taken their first ecstasy came up to me and told me that when that song played uh they said if I die now I die happy 
know, that's a good like, feeling. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you it's did. It's a good song. Yeah, no, definitely. It sounds like you did cultivate <laughs> some some uh, factory esque vibes in your uh, music tenure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the the kind of factory thing was like the squat, basically, yeah. where you know we it was like my friend who is a fashion Gareth Pugh, he's a fashion designer, very experimental and incredible fashion designer. I did a lot of his early catwalk soundtracks, which started out as DJ mixes. And then we started essentially, then I remixed something. And then I was like, wait, remixes, if you take away the samples are actually music. And uh, I sort of was like, maybe I could make music. And so we started uh, producing stuff. I worked with a, 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 music technician friend of mine and we put together these sort of like 15 minute epic very gothic very kind of dramatic kind of like slow 110 bpm sort of goth atmospheric techno uh and so i I have a soundcloud which has all that stuff on it and i got like a lot of a lot of people followed my music for a while um which i love and it's a very like i feel like it was a very kind of I had a very specific audience of kind of like uh like gay slightly goth influenced fashionistas um but you know we've all got our audiences of course <laughs> uh Did you record as but yeah, Matthew Love no it was I guess it's Matt just Matthew Stone okay. on, on SoundCloud I think most of it's still up there um but some of it is like we were recording like violins and layering it up. There's one that kind of sounds like a, uh, like a sound, like from who does, who's the, is it Goran Bregovic who did the Black Cat, White Cat? Is that the movie? It sort of sounds like a, uh, yeah, there's, 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 there's different, different things going on there. But, um, but in terms of the factory, it, it felt like, the squat was that like Gareth was in there using it as his studio. Um, lots of artists living there, making work. Like we had like a dance old, basically it was like a 7,000 square foot art deco department store with a parade of shops on the ground floor. We turned one into a gallery above that was an empty 1500 capacity nightclub that had previously been used as one of those like laser shoot em up venues. Oh, right. Yeah um and its most recent use was like an african restaurant uh and then above the club was a gym um <clears throat> that had quite a lot of the older equipment left in it along with like a sunbed um and like coca-cola fridges and things like that and so that was like our kitchen studio socializing area and above that was an old evangelical church so we kind of had like, <laughs> like cult, culture on the ground floor, nightlife on the floor above, uh, health and food in the gym on the floor above that, and then spirituality on the top level where we all lived. The universe uh, in the building. That, <laughs> yeah, and that that was very much the kind of like everybody hanging out, being crazy, getting drunk for days. Uh, and we had these big parties that were, there was a high level of organization, sort of six weeks of setting stuff up and those occurred during the period when magic mushrooms were legal so we had a mushroom bar and 
everybody was interested in nitrous oxide for the first time and so there were balloons everywhere and people skating around the dance floor and in shopping trolleys and we'd built forests inside that were lit by candles in hindsight that was a huge fire risk um because the, the forest was made from like dried out old christmas trees um so this is like in 2004 or something and there's this kind of incredible story of um <clears throat> the police turning up at the party and saying we're not trying to shut it down but there's somebody here who we didn't expect to be here and we want to make sure that they're okay kind of thing and it was like okay no idea who that could be and then evidently there were what appeared what i found out afterwards were cia agents in the party pretending to be down Whoa. so they were like standing around and the next day we're discussing it and i'm like who could it be because i've been saying to the police officers i was like there was a friend of mine that was in like a like a uh a soap opera at the time and i was like maybe there are some like celebrities here and like but i think they're fine like they chose to be here like <laughs> right. everybody else like here. right like and i found out from my friend that her friend had texts saying that he was bringing someone called lauren bush mm-hmm. who's george bush's niece uh... um and so she had turned up at this squat party in south london and evidently <laughs> she she couldn't die there you know like right. that would have been bad yeah that's not you um, don't want that to happen <laughs> no so so but they but yeah so the police came in and they were help making sure that all the fire exits were open and things like that um and it was funny because they'd stopped people coming in but obviously by opening the fire escapes there was just another way in. <laughs> so everybody who'd been kind of held back came in. And so those parties were pretty wild and quite legendary. And um, and again, a, a kind of good mix of people. And uh, yeah, and it meant that for six years of my career, of my life, <laughs> um, I didn't have to pay rent in London. Yeah. And That's that meant advantage. I didn't... Yeah, I didn't have to have a job. And we were like leaning into the whole experience and going to places where we knew people chucked out food and things like that and so we were coming home with bags of like we'd come home with like 100 avocados or something (laughs) and a like massive dried out goat's cheese and make banquets where like nothing had been paid for um five course meal where not a single ingredient had been paid for where someone went to mcdonald's to get salt sachets so that we you know and to me that was that's kind of what i mean by we were like it was life as art with each other as its audience and um you know and so i think experiencing that kind of utopian collaborative fun ridiculous period is very informative but not just in the sense that like that's what we can all realize within our lives but also you know the tenderness of understanding how something like that can be created but also how fragile those types of networks are and you know and what is involved with maintaining community and sustaining creative vitality um whilst also you know trying to be inclusive and non-hierarchical because it was very we wanted you know it to be 
something that everybody felt they could access. People would be like, who's in Wow Wow? And we'd be like, anyone that says they are. Right. Anyone who comes <laughs> to the party. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, in a way. And then it was also, we were invited to do some kind of like institutional things. And so we opened that invite out to like anyone. So we would end up with doing events where there were like 80 performers all doing their own self-directed thing. Yeah. And so we did something at like Tate Britain that was like that. And like all of these performers that never would have been able to access an institutional space like that came in and let loose. That sounds, I mean, well, and now your studios where you live. Yeah, it's different now. It's a little quieter. I live, <laughs> yeah. I, so I live in a village. Um, I, yeah, like, as I was saying before, I got sick. I, um, had this plant-based awakening where i was spending a lot i, I basically visited a uh a, a tree a specific tree every day for a year and had a mindfulness practice based around watching it change uh it was inspired by there's a herbalist called nathaniel hughes and he teaches something called intuitive herbalism i listened to a podcast that he was on it's like a half hour podcast and um he yeah he talked about this idea of choosing a plant and going to visit it and seeing what happens and that was very transformative in my life and i had the dog and basically uh, over time i realized given uh my illness i had stepped away from going out i'd stopped drinking i'd you know was living very differently and I realized well I work from home I go out to the marshes and pretend that I'm in living in nature for like a couple of hours a day and I see friends at home and and even my friends that live like two minutes away I see them like maybe twice a month yeah <laughs> and I was like well I don't have to be here and so I started to think about moving away and moving to somewhere in the countryside that had proximity to a city and that ended up being i'm like i'm in the countryside like i'm on the border between england and wales i can see wales out of the window and i live about half an hour drive from where my sisters live so i spend a lot of time with my sisters they have kids i love that nice um and yeah but it's it's beautiful to have a garden and walk out the door and walk the dog and um i love it before i moved all my friends were like are you not going to be lonely and then i moved and then a few months later the pandemic hit and they said we're all lonely <laughs> how did well when they said like are you not going to be lonely i just said were you not are you not lonely in london right right and then like no one has an answer for that so <laughs> yeah so you you were one of those people moved and in, in a almost like lucky because i had some friends who had moved you know upstate new york before the pandemic or moved out right. to the country and you're like oh like i was cooped up in a brooklyn apartment for months and months and months and they were they had a huge you know 10 acres of land to run around in and just <laughs> you know it was it was kind of you know fortuitous in a way yeah i mean there was definitely a period where 
I just didn't mention that. Right. You didn't want to tap dance. <laughs> like, I was like, <laughs> people would be like, you were really on it. And I was like, I guess, yeah, it has felt very, um, the timing has been, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it felt, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was grateful. <laughs> well, I imagine, um, you know, in doing the work that you do digitally, as, as a, do you have a large studio or do you have like a modest studio? How do you, how, what's your working situation like? Um, so I like, if I'm honest, it's pretty much my desk yeah. these days. Um, like I do have a setup for physically painting and photographing brushstrokes, but I also have a massive archive of photographs of brushstrokes and something. I mean, when I started, photographing brushstrokes and printing them because I was interested in this idea of forcing the works to function like paintings in the sense that like oh well they should they should only be printed once and at the beginning I was like if I photograph a brushstroke I should only use it once in one painting because then it's like real painting can't reuse it why (laughs) why I was like artificially like limiting the potential of the technology but there evidently was some sort of like process that i had to go through to understand what it was that i was unlocking with 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 the process that i was developing and um yeah and in that sense i was sensing something that was coming in terms of like what feels like the resonance and relevance of my work now um but it but yeah but but there was and, then, and so it took me a while and I was like, oh, it's fine because you can't really see it. Then I was like, no, this is why my work is interesting. <laughs> like, it's like, Why are you fighting you it know? sort of thing? Yeah. yeah. And it, it's, you know, and it took me a long time to realize, for example, that like if I paint a figure, I can repose that figure and it's still painted. It's like, it right. still has the textures on it. And for yeah and it's like getting over those barriers of feeling like anything is cheating that anything in the process and i think that there's i understand it you know there because so much suffering is transmuted through the arduous aspects of art practices um but i do think that artists are quite guilty of being complicit in grind culture and fetishizing uh struggle um and as i say i understand the transformative nature of struggle but generally self-imposed struggle is not the one like, <laughs> um well, it depends on the person it, some people function i mean to- you know to- no totally totally and i'm pr- probably just you know denying my own reality but um but it well, certainly, if I'm talking about like I can only use the the brushstroke once, but I think um, I think that I I I want to make my process easier and easier. I want to just reside in the moments where it feels like art is arising in front of me, and I want to really kind of like invest in streamlining that. And it's not it's not like oh I need to make a thousand or ten thousand works or whatever. Um, although I'm not averse to that I haven't kind of unlocked the sort of like generative practices that a lot of digital artists 
uh, have access to. But there is, I just want to be able to stay in the peaceful states of creativity that I have touched into over the last few years. Because like I said, it wasn't always like that. I had to interrupt the negative self-talk and retrain my brain to be okay with like being who I am and what I make. And that process still feels like it's underway, but there is, there's just this thing that like, I remember the first time it happened and I remember thinking, am I allowed to feel like this? Right. And it was just like, I was inside a bubble of like peacefulness and I'd never experienced it. It's relaxed. It sounds very peaceful or like, or (laughs) healthy, you know? Yeah, and I think it was just quiet. <laughs> I had the you same know? realization when I had the first time I had like twelve cups of coffee in one day. I said, "Is this is this okay? Am I okay? <laughs> am I allowed to do this?" I'm joking, you know. Feeding no, that addiction. I, mean, I have the I have the that uh, crazy work thing. I think it comes from my parents mm. of like growing up blue collar. That you know, there's you find something in heart, or like I just want to. You know, I wake up at like 4.30 in the morning and go to the gym every day. And I, I yeah. feel, but it makes me feel good for some reason. It's probably some like no, but that's great. detrimental thing or I'm scratching an itch no, that no, shouldn't no. be there. But, you know. We shouldn't pathologize things that feel good. Um, yeah, if it de-stresses you, that's probably a good thing. Whether, even if it is challenging. You know what I mean? Yeah. So some people find meditating really challenging. But it can be right. very healthy and de-stressing. Other people just want noise, you know, they can't have silence or they, they feel relaxed when their mind is busy or their their hands are occupied, you know. It's just, mm. I think it's imperative that people listen to themselves, you know, and, and figure out Absolutely. what that is, you know. That's yeah, healthy. thank you. Yeah, no, I would agree. And I think that, <laughs> like many people, I, you know, I have a tendency to project my own experience onto things. Oh, no, I didn't. Um, I wasn't saying you were. I was just thinking like, damn, I'm like, I, I, that sounds good. I should probably be t- <laughs> be simplifying. I mean, it's some it's some stretch, you know, I think it's healthy. I mean, it's yeah, I don't live in that space by any means, but I do aspire to spending as much time in it and it comes and it goes. But like, there's just certain points where it's like, I know that I don't have to think about what is happening in my art if my heart no in my head (laughs) yeah no i don't have to think about what's happening in my heart that's it but there is there is this thing where it's like and and like you joked about coffee but you joked about it because there is actually oh yeah there's some some elevated state that caffeine is really beautiful for right um and and feels very clear and um (laughs) so yeah, I don't know. I had, uh, you know, there's different ways to get there too. I've, you know, um, well, I taught in Japan over summer and you know, we did Zen mm-hmm. meditation, you know, at a, like a Buddhist temple. And mm-hmm. that stretch of like an hour when we were meditating was one of the most wow. amazing, de stressing, beautiful experiences. But wow. I, I had a realization like, I just can't do this all the time. It's, you know what I mean? It, it, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be you don't able. have to do it for an hour that's, that's i know exactly. it got a little longer than <laughs> <laughs> but but no i'm just saying like you know there is um you can realize that there's different ways to achieve this 
feeling of Absolutely. like calm, but it's really listening. You know, it's hard to listen to yourself, you know, cause there's so much external noise, you know, that, mm. that it's really that, I think that's a really big challenge, even like in the context of art, you know, of listening to your voice with all that exterior noise out there and like, Oh, I wish I could do this. Or I hope this person likes what I do, whatever it is, you know, of mm. just listening to yourself. It's so hard to get to that point, but I think it is very healthy, you know, Definitely. So, um, well, how can people check out your work? What's the best way for people to find you? I mean, a lot of people have found you, but I'm just saying for those who might, who might not have found you yet. <laughs> I guess, um, somewhat predictably, like Twitter and Instagram are my oh, you main roaming grounds. Nice. On occasion, I do my best, but yeah, um, and you know, I'm planning to relaunch my website. Um, I feel like um, I want to bring all of my works on chain and kind of have my own platform. I feel like oh, that's, that's cool. the way. Yeah, I think I think that I think that in the future, artists will. I mean, you can't speak flatly in this way. It's annoying to people, but I do think that um, having. I think that art, the way I see it, and is that artists will have their own websites that. Are, connected to other artists websites so when you go to an artist website you'll be able to discover who who are they connected to who are they inspired by whose work do they collect who you know which other artists have collected their work right that all of that data that we're trying to kind of access by looking at who people are following on social networks and things like that i imagine that more as a layer that goes onto the digital spaces that artists create for themselves so that'll be the kind of um you know, one of the main spaces that you would go to to encounter an artist and encounter their work, but also to potentially collect it and understand who else has collected it. Um, rather than us, you know, it's like I neglect my website because I'm like putting stuff into social media. Right. And it doesn't, it does, those models don't feel sustainable to me. So, yeah. Uh, that's my kind of plan. But for now, come find me on the ground. Yeah. Well, I think that'll be cool to, you know, instead of open sea for artists to have their own sort of open sea, you know? Ex- yeah, exactly. So, it so it's distributed in, you know, my space yeah, but, or something. <laughs> yeah. And then, but the problem is with something like open sea is that they dictate the context of the work and the way it's presented. And I understand there's a kind of aggregator. There's a, there's a real sort of function and a marketplace. Yeah. There's a very useful function for that. But I think that, you know, we artists need to define the, define the context of their work and how people experience it in digital space. So, yeah. Um, but also, like, I try and respond to all messages if people uh, send me a DM or whatever. DMs are open on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. That's so. cool. Well, listen, I... Um... I, I really love the work. I think it's, I Thank mean, you. I've been lucky to see it at the whole, you know, I've uh, here in New York, I've seen it and, mm. um, you know, it's just not to, not the hierarchical, you know, in person, but it does something different when you see it that big and, you know, there's something yeah, cool no. about that. So, you know, yeah, it's, I, I, the way that I think about it is the, the, cause people talk about what's with digital art, what's the original work, right. is it the file? Is it the print of it? Is it 
a site-specific installation. And I sort of take this sort of post, I guess, Duchampian idea of like art being completed by the viewer. And I believe that my work is the, it is every iteration of it across every screen that it's ever projected onto the retina of somebody looking at it. So it's Instagram. It's the whole, it's the picture you take of it at the whole and put in your stories. It's, it's, it's fully mediated form. And, you know, because that is what people are experiencing. That's just the reality of what an artwork is. And so rather than resisting that, I I create for that space. Right. I think about that space when I'm creating so that it looks good with light behind it. And it looks good when you are inside one of the art world's churches. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same. You know, sometimes <laughs> people say to me like, well, are you, do you, uh, you paint, you animate, you make collages. Like, which one is mm. the one or whatever? It's like, no, it's all, yeah, yeah. they're just different ways to see the work, you know. It's all in the mind. It's like it generates in the mind and then that's where it comes out, basically. Well, listen, it was, a, it was great talking to you. You too. Thanks Thank for you ta- so much. Thanks for taking the time and, uh, and the work is great. So I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Matthew Stone, many thanks. You can check out his work online. He's got a lot of stuff on the internet. And don't forget, he's releasing a fine art print titled Play, which is available now in the next 24 hours, only at misa.art. And their handle is at misa.artmarket. Misa.artmarket. So you can check out that print. And you can check out more about his work on his website and follow him at Matthew Stone Art. He's got a very active Instagram and uh, his work is really great. So check it out. Uh, we got many more great episodes coming up. So stay tuned. Don't forget to get that pre-order of Why I Make Art, Contemporary Artist Stories About Life and Work. It's the Sound and Vision Podcast book. It's got images. It's got features on bunch of artists it's got sketches from the guest book it's got themed quotes and it's 25 bucks it's not bad and it's a pretty cool little book to have in the studio for inspiration and checking out other people's stuff so you can find that on altelier editions website and you can order it wherever you order books why make art thanks for listening next week another podcast <laughs>